0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science,
2: Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And last week, we had so much fun giving you guys a little um history lesson uh the to- on the topic of epidemiology and we and we took you through the different eras of epidemiology uh Andrew, did you want to summarize that at all or just any highlights? yeah, or- i mean i I
0: think. You know, we did a good job of kind of naming the key players, um, the different eras. We talked about, you know, miasma theory and hygiene era versus the germ theory era. We talked about Jon Snow. We talked about, um, you know, his... First instance of a true epidemiological investigation, um, looking into the cholera outbreaks in London. You love
2: John Snow. You love that story. I love
0: him. There's a book. There's a book called The Ghost Map that's really about you know this whole story. Um, And it's you know it's written for the general public, and it's it's a really good read if anybody's curious to hear more about it. But it's about his spot map, right? His spot map. You know, tracking this outbreak of cholera and using the clues to kind of figure out where the infection was coming from without even really knowing what the infection was.
2: Right. Right. And then from beyond that, then we were talking about, you know, different eras too, right? We we talked about um, how we we moved um, from miasma, then we then we moved to um, what was it? Not not germ theory, but the I forget what we called it. Inve- infectious disease era, thank you. <laughs> then we moved into chronic disease, and you know there was this emphasis on um, risk factors for chronic disease, but they didn't fully understand the mechanisms, so we sometimes refer to that as black box epidemiology, and then we um, we. Found Fast-forwarded to to present day, what we're calling this is it eco epidemiology? Mm-hmm. I believe is what uh, what we called it, and it's this idea of multi causality, right? The, so many different variables can interact with each other, and it could be a combination of uh, of different factors at different levels. You know, individual level, so, uh, societal level. You could have genetic factors mixed with behavioral risk factors, and um, so now we have a much more complex understanding of the way that disease work. So
0: and I and I think mm-hmm. just you know we did a really good job of of underscoring the fact that epidemiology is not just limited to infectious disease, right? It's about the distribution, the demography mm-hmm. and the breakdown of disease or health related, you know, issues. And and that could be infectious disease, it could be chronic illness, it could also be other sorts of things like behavioral, mental health things like mm-hmm. that. It's really it's all sorts of causes of burden on human populations.
2: Yes. And we pointed out how now with COVID-19, people actually, they've heard this word epidemiology, but now it's been associated with, um, you know, infectious disease. And and I think you you made a really, uh, you made a a point to really underscore that it's not epidemiology, as you just said, is not specific to infectious disease. Um, There are all kinds of other diseases, chronic diseases, and and mental health issues, and others that uh, that that you know are encompassed by epidemiology. So we loved that history lesson so much that we thought we would continue the trend this week. And and this week we're going to talk about the history of vaccinations. And this is something that Andrea and I are super passionate about. And and as we prepared for this episode, we realized we have so much content. There's so much we want to say, um, but we're really going to focus on some of the um, historical bases for modern day vaccination. So it's really going to be, I think, interesting, but it'll be a, a true history lesson. Before we do that, we wanted to... To talk a bit about a question that we get all the time, and and we understand that we're all feeling anxiety. This has been, you know, over a year now dealing with COVID nineteen, and people want to know, will this pandemic ever end? And and I think this is really appropriate to kick off today's episode because I'm sure our answers, Andrea, have um, might include mention of vaccinations. <laughs> so, do you want to give your response to that question?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly the the pandemic as we know it will end and it and it and it will change into something else. And and I think right now we're kind of at this precipice of are we going to be able to eradicate it um, so that it it's not going to be plaguing people as frequently or is it going to enter this kind of cyclical situation where, um, you know, we call we call it endemic, meaning it's it's present in the human population, but we have protections against it. And so we don't really know which route it's going gonna, it's gonna to take. Um, we're seeing kind of the emergence of these new viral variants. And if you've listened to us talk or checked out any of our social posts, you know that these variants emerge because of mutations. And mutations themselves are random, but um, continued transmission from person to person accelerates that so you know we're seeing places relax mitigation measures stopping mask mandates allowing indoor dining and all these things that we know drive infectious disease spread and particularly COVID-19 spread and so it's this race against these places that are relaxing those measures and getting enough people vaccinated and so we're kind of at this tipping point so you know vaccines are certainly going to be a critical piece in this story, you know, it, it is possible that with mass vaccination, you know, we will actually be able to stamp it out outright. And, and you know, the cases that we see maybe are just mild. Um, we know that all the vaccines that are authorized prevent severe illness, prevent hospitalization, prevent death, which are amazing achievements. But I think we're also in this holding pattern where we don't really know how the variants are going to play in in terms of are they going to truly affect vaccine efficacy? Are we going to see new variants? Um, So the next few months, I think, are going to be really telling.
2: Totally agree. That was such a beautiful and comprehensive response. Um, (laughs) I guess, yeah, I I just want to allay those concerns for for people who who think that this will be our lives indefinitely. Mm -hmm. And You know, I feel so strongly as a public health scientist that this pandemic will end. And when I say pandemic, I'm referring to this acute public health emergency that we find ourselves in, right? Right. Because as you said, Andrea, it's likely that the virus itself, right, SARS-CoV-2, is is likely still going to continue circulating and, and mutating, and it may be that COVID becomes endemic over time. But as we continue to deploy these vaccines, we are going to um, slow the spread of infection. And I think we we all, I, I know we're going to get past this, this pandemic, you know, this this crisis, this emergency state that we're in. And, and I agree, vaccination is such a key piece of the puzzle in combination with continued mitigation. Now is not the time to let down your guard. Um, and the other thing to add, we just did a post and and it's so important that I think it's worth reiterating vaccination is not completed until two weeks after your final dose <laughs> of the vaccine. So don't get your, you know, your first shot and run around thinking that you're totally, right. you know, immune to, to the virus. So right. anyhow, can yeah, you tell I mean, that we're passionate? I, yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I think you give a, a very, you know, opt- and, I, and I agree, you know, certainly life as we know it is going to return to kind of the before times, um, you know, throughout this year. And I think in particular the summer is going to be a a true indication of where we're going to sit. Um, you know, it's not going to be like flipping a light switch. And I think it's also important to, to mention that this is not going to be the last pandemic, right? We we see pandemics periodically. And we've talked about why these things emerge. Um, a lot of it is because of our increased interaction with wild animals or, or non-human species. So globalization, encroaching on, you know, wild lands, um, you know, wild animal markets where a lot Lots of different species are interacting in unhealthy conditions, Uh, factory farming, all of these things increase and accelerate the emergence of new zoonotic diseases. Um, And those are those diseases that jump from one species into humans. And so, you know, we can't just say, "Okay, this is over. It's done with like there's going to be another one. This is this is this is this evolutionary arms race between animals, species, humans and pathogens.
2: Absolutely. Um, and I definitely don't mean to minimize it by saying, Oh, yeah, we'll just roll out vaccines. I mean, obviously, <laughs> no, we no, know I'm... that it's not quite so easy to do that. And, and right now, at least in the in the US, I, I keep saying, you know, right now, the demand for vaccines, at least in most places, um, surpasses the supply, right? But I but at some point, I'd say in the next couple of months, yeah. we're going to hit a point where the opposite is true. And, and we're really going Going to have to focus our efforts on convincing people, you know, opening their eyes to the to, to the to the scientific truth and the the power of vaccinations and allay concerns and and really, um, I think we're up against really, really significant vaccine hesitancy. And it's not going to be such an easy path. But maybe talking about the history of vaccination, Andrea, Mm, (laughs) will help people understand.
0: And and vaccine hesitancy isn't isn't new, right? Vaccine hesitancy has existed since the beginning of vaccines. And that's why we really felt like it was important to talk about it.
2: Right. And we're going to talk about some historical examples of vaccine hesitancy. Um, Mm -hmm. So, okay. So there are so many questions and concerns, of course, about new vaccine technology. And we thought it was important to give everyone a trip down memory lane and talk about how this technology has evolved. So Andrea, can you kick things off? Sure, yeah. So,
0: all right, (laughs) there's a lot to (laughs) unpack. The and we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty details, but broadly speaking, the very first vaccination or formal vaccination is attributed to Edward Jenner, who is a British physician and scientist. Um, and we're going to talk about him in the timeline of this. But um, even as early as ancient Egypt and um, the Chinese history um, around 1000 current era, there are documented instances of what we're calling rudimentary vaccination and and these instances these historical accounts is really where the logic behind vaccination began and and here I think it's important to differentiate the the term variolation versus vaccination and so most of our vaccine history really begins with smallpox um, and you'll kind of understand why that is um, as we move through our story but um, variolation was the process of intentionally inoculating someone with infectious smallpox material. So it's called variolation because smallpox is the variola virus. And smallpox plagued people for thousands of years. We've seen evidence that Ramses V, who was the fourth Pharaoh of Egypt had evidence of smallpox scars as a, you know, his, his mummy had evidence of smallpox scars and that was, you know, dated at 1100 BCE. Um, and so, it, it can have a variety of presentations, um, depending on whether it's simple smallpox or confluent smallpox or hemorrhagic smallpox. The mortality rates for smallpox can range from 1% all the way up to 100%. And the average case fatality ratio of smallpox is 30%. So it's a hugely debilitating can, illness. Can we just
2: jump in for one sec? That is crazy high, um, 30%. And, and I know we have some other statistics that are even scarier than that. That, but that means that 30% of cases, people who were infected with smallpox, Died from it. I mean, those are not good odds. Sorry. Absolutely,
0: no. It's 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 terrible. I mean, it, it certainly it it smallpox itself really altered the course of history. Aside from the development of vaccines, but you know, throughout history, infectious disease outbreaks really alter geopolitical um, factors. They alter the scope of religious um, practices. You know, and and smallpox was certainly you know one of those things, and and certainly it spread around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, initially in early human history, humans, you know, people were kind of clustered in the Africa's Europe and Asia um, continents. And so this variolation, which was the artificial inoculation of people with smallpox was a method to try and reduce that mortality rate um, because it was so fatal. And so, Basically they're they're using smallpox material and I'm going to get into to that in just a second mm-hmm. you know to to basically expose people intentionally
2: And the whole point of that, just if I could jump in, and and perhaps this is obvious, but, you know, they recognize that people who previously had smallpox did not get reinfected, right? That was the basis
0: for this. Exactly. Sorry, go on. (laughs) Once
2: someone, you
0: know, the 70% of people that recovered um, were then immune to smallpox. And, And, of course, you know, often that was you know they had permanent scarring from all the pustules and things like that but but they survive right and so so smallpox presents with pustules most oftenly and these these pustules form sores and then scabs and those pustules are filled with virus so variolation was basically the first or the rudimentary vaccination and what what people would do originally was take these dried scabs from a person that had smallpox they would grind up the dried scabs and they would blow this up people's noses.
2: Lovely. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Just a little fun fact. I was reading about this and uh, they would actually, they were very specific. They would blow the, um, these ground up dried scabs up the right nostril of boys and the left for girls. Not quite sure of the logic behind (laughs) that, but that's what they did. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America N.A. member FDSE.
0: Now, you know, <laughs> this was this was an artificial way of introducing smallpox because as I said, those those scabs are filled with virus. And you know, the issue was, of course, is this is still smallpox, which is a fatal illness, right? So so the scabs had to be dry enough. They couldn't be moist, you know. You, you know when you have a scab, for any reason, it goes through this process, right, where it's kind of, it's still like... <laughs> it's so gross. It's still wet, you know, where it's still kind of congealed yeah. blood and it's not, you know. It's, so anyway, so the scab had to be dry enough and it had to be from a person with, with only a mild case of smallpox. So there's a range in disease severity, as I mentioned. You know, so they had to they had to take these scabs from people that had milder cases, right? They They noticed that if they were taking it from a person with a more severe case... Um, the outcomes were worse.
2: I was just going to say, and of course, another issue is that a person contracting smallpox through variolation could still transmit it to other people, right? And and Absolutely. variolation could spread other diseases, syphilis, hepatitis, all kinds of things. <laughs> right. So, you're you're taking a
0: scab, which is blood material and, right. and tissue material from one person, and you're giving it to another. So of course, it's not sterile. It's you know, it's, there's 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 a handful of issues there. Um, and and variolation could still be fatal because of mm-hmm. course you're still trying transmitting live virus to a person but the mortality rate of variolation compared to actual smallpox infection was much lower as around two to three percent versus an average of 30 percent so you know variolation was a step in the right direction but we know that there were still risks involved people could still die from variolation obviously much lower risk than smallpox again we're, we're on this track right so the process of variolation Evolved over time. It wasn't always blowing dried up scabs of uh, people's noses. Um, sometimes what they would do is they would take a rag and they would wrap it around the arm of somebody with smallpox sore, so you're picking up pustule material, um, and then you would tie it around a healthy person's arm, and you're basically it has to be this this direct contact, right, skin to skin and things like this. So by the 1700s, um, Robert and Daniel Sutton, a father and son team, developed what they call the Sutton method or the Sutton Method of um, variolation, and this involves scratching the skin with a lancet um, to to artificially introduce the the smallpox virus that way, as opposed to blowing it up a person's nose.
2: Oh my gosh! So, Andrea, I know you wanted to talk briefly about the smallpox outbreak in Boston, right? Yes. In the 1700s. Now,
0: before I get into that really quickly, I do want to mention that, um, you know, we talked about how there were outbreaks around the world and, and that we, we have evidence of smallpox from, you know, even BCE times, right, ancient Egypt and things like that, and the average case fatality rate is about thirty percent. But I do want to talk very quickly about when it was introduced into the Americas in the fifteen hundreds. Um, among indigenous people, smallpox had yeah. a case fatality ratio of up to ninety percent. So it really crazy. It oh really just wiped out indigenous populations because they had no exposure. Um, of related viruses, and that becomes important. when We talk about the the first vaccine that we developed for smallpox. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. you know, smallpox or variolation was was kind of our first instance of anti-vax rhetoric right people were opposed to this politically socially etc and so in 1721 there was a very large smallpox outbreak in boston and it killed 844 people and during this epidemic that was raging in boston and obviously we have to keep in mind that population density was much smaller so 844 people was a lot of people back then So there was a physician named Boylston. Um, I'm sure you recognize that name if you've ever been to Boston. Um, And he variolated 248 people. He was the very first person that introduced variolation to the Americas. Before that, variolation was occurring in Asia, in Africa, and in Europe. Um, Now, Of those that were variolated, only six of them died, and that was a case fatality ratio for variolation of 3%, and compared to the outbreak in Boston, the overall case fatality rate was 14%. Mm -hmm. And there was an exodus of people who left Boston because they were terrified of catching smallpox. And so this was really the first instance of variolation, but there was a lot of outcry about it. There were some folks that were proponents of variolation, and, and this was... This physician, Boylston, did this variolation at Cotton Mather's urging. So Cotton Mather was a proponent of variolation, but he was criticized. And actually, people tried to bomb his house and wrote violent messages towards him, told, you know, said, Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you. I'll inoculate you with this, a pox to you. And this was with a a primitive grenade that was thrown through his house. And he actually wrote about how, you know, the devil was loose in Boston, that people, people who were crying out about variolation was, you know, raving and railing, um, you know, acting as if they had a satanic fury upon them. And it was mm-hmm. very interesting that even back then you had this violent outcry from people opposed to what we can call, consider public
2: health measures. I was going to say, well, apparently their relatives are alive and well today because we know the anti-vex movement. It's no laughing matter, but my goodness. Well, Um, I find it really
0: interesting because Cotton Mather, you know, if if our listeners don't know, he was a Puritan minister, right? Mm So he was a religious figurehead and he was actually promoting the integration of these public health measures, you know, with his his religious followers. Um, And now we see this disparity where many hyper-religious populations are in fact opposed to vaccination. I find it very interesting.
2: It is. It is interesting. Um, Another example, famously in 1736, Ben Franklin lost his four-year-old son to smallpox, um, and then he wrote about how he regretted not variolating him. So there's just this brief quote that I'll, I'll read. In 1736, I lost one of my sons, a fine boy of four years by the smallpox taken in the common way. I long regretted bitterly and still regret that I had not given it to him by inoculation this i mention for the sake of the parents who om- who omit that operation on the supposition that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it my example showing that the regret may be the same either way and that therefore the safer should be chosen and i wish people could could hear that hundreds of years later.
0: Um, right. It's this risk reward balance, right,
2: right? Right, right. And obviously we know now today, you know, we're not dealing with the 1700s, these, you know, these risky variolation practices. We have some, the, the vaccines, modern day vaccines are obviously far safer. So it, it should be a much clearer um, decision. Right. So, oh, sorry, go on. Nope. go <laughs> <laughs> I I was going to move us along a little bit um, to, you know, the late 18th century. Now in in Europe, um, there was the notion that people who contracted cowpox and and could not be reinfected. That was a fairly common understanding. Right. Especially in dairy communities in England and in Germany. Right. So that brings us, Andrea, I know you want to tell us about Edward Jenner. And my gosh, do I hope that when people hear the name Jenner, they're not just thinking about Kylie and Kendall. <laughs> uh, that oh would my be gosh. my
0: last, my last thought. But, but yeah. So, so we very quickly talked about Edward Jenner in the beginning of the episode. So this was 1796. Edward Jenner was an, a, a British physician and scientist, and he had heard those same tales that you just mentioned, Jess, that milkmaids that contracted cowpox, you know, were were immune to smallpox, and um, so so cowpox is called by, caused by the cowpox virus, but he called it varioli vaccinii or the smallpox of the cow. And so, you know, he had heard from a milkmaid when he was a young boy and he had heard all of the the folklore about it. So as he, and he had a very interesting scientific career. He actually did quite a bit of ornithology um, as I was reading about him over the years and and did a lot of other scientific inquiry in, in addition to his infectious disease work. But in 1796, he, in May of 1796, he, he, ha, he found a milkmaid, her name was Sarah Nelms, and she had um, cowpox sores on her hands. So cowpox was a, a, a pox virus that infected cows and milkmaids who are milking the udders of the cows could get get it by touching the infected cow's udder, right? And cowpox would present very mildly in humans. They would typically get localized pustules, not, not systemic um, disease like smallpox or not systemic pustules like smallpox. And it was almost never fatal in humans. Actually, I, I think it was never fatal. And then once they would recover, again, folklore says they were immune to smallpox itself. So he found this milkmaid, Sarah Nelms, who had an active cowpox infection on her hands. So she had these sores on her hands. And what he did was he took some of the pustule from one of her sores and he scratched it into the skin of an eight-year-old boy named James Phipps.
2: This was not IRB approved. <laughs> Sorry, go on.
0: <laughs> oh, goodness. All of the regulatory and issues. But anyway, so James Phipps developed mild symptoms for about nine days. He lost his appetite. He had a fever. He did have a few sores. Um, And this was back in May. In July 1796, Edward Jenner decided that he was going to now challenge James with smallpox. So what he did was he scratched actual smallpox into the skin of this little boy, James Phipps. Poor boy. Poor Jimmy. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But he did not get ill. So Edward Jenner coined this term vaccination, which means if you look at the Latin root, vaccinia means cow, so it means of the cow. Um, And he started to publish these observations and this research in 1797 and 1798 and started to share this method with others around Europe. And so by 1800, this practice had actually spread across Europe. Eventually, we replaced the cowpox virus with another virus called vaccinia virus. And these are all very closely related to each other. Cowpox, horsepox, smallpox, vaccinia virus. Um, and, And it's important to note that this method of vaccination using the vaccinia virus is used to this day. Although we've officially eradicated smallpox as of 1980. So there's only rare instances where we do vaccinate people now.
2: So Andrea, I have a quick, quick question for you because we got this question about variolation just because I know now we're really going to get into to vaccination so before we before we move on completely we had some questions early on in the pandemic about this as it relates to covid-19 and if we're wearing masks for example you know people will maybe be exposed to a little bit of the virus and so is that a good thing is that somehow a way to to variolate against SARS-CoV-2. I don't know if my question is clear. Yeah, I mean, it was an
0: interesting theory because we do see that, you know, in certain pathogens, like with with the smallpox, cowpox thing, uh, a low dose, what we call challenge, can kind of trigger that immunity. But with SARS-CoV-2, we see such a diversity in immune response and such mm-hmm. a diversity in illness, um, you know, that that this is just, you know, not a phenomenon that, that we see. Um, you know, and aside from that, we're talking about, you know, running the risk of exposing someone to A fatal illness and on top of that you know we we've been wearing masks for this whole Mm -hmm. time and we we haven't actually seen any sort of kind of you know temporary immunity um due to mask wearing um ultimately that was you know an interesting thought
2: but nothing that was backed up by data right right okay we put that to bed so back back to the conversation at hand. So, you know, we're we're talking of course Edward Jenner, he's the guy we all learn about and talk about, but we should mention there were other folks who have also been attributed to vaccination, right? (laughs) Um, So there's evidence that there were other physicians, particularly in the dairy communities of England and Germany, as I mentioned, um, who were aware decades before Jenner's work of the protective effect that prior cowpox infection provided patients. However, these physicians didn't follow through on the observations or disseminate their findings. Um, one in particular, so there was this prominent farmer in Dorset County, Benjamin Jesty, who vaccinated his wife and two sons with cowpox lymph. Taken from lesions on the udder of an infected cow in 1774, so he just they, bypassed
0: the the milkmaid. He just took it right from the sore of the right from itself. the source. How lovely,
2: <laughs> just lovely. Um, and and they, his, his wife and children, they remained free of smallpox despite raging local epidemics. Justy devised and undertook his vaccination method. It was actually 22 years before Jenner, yeah. who is usually credited as the originator. But, Andrea, I know you, you pointed out that Jenner was the first to have devised a scientific method, right, the the approach to vaccination. Did you want to expand on that at all? Or? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we now have some evidence that there were others that were undertaking similar methods, Um, you know, not to minimize Jenner's accomplishments, because of course, there was not a lot of cross-pollination back then. Um, but his procedure where he did the vaccination with the cowpox and then challenged Poor little Jimmy to actual smallpox, um, an intentional (laughs) exposure, plus he documented things, plus he constructed the procedure, he actually shared the procedure, and he actually shared material with people around the world who wanted to have you know, cowpox lesions available to to vaccinate people. So
2: Right. So what, what Jenner discovered, it, would, it actually spread to other continents, as you're saying. And right. so now talking about the U.S., uh, Benjamin Waterhouse performed the first vaccinations in Boston, Massachusetts in July 1800 using material provided by Jenner. Uh, and he's widely credited with introducing vaccinations to the U.S. President Thomas Jefferson actively promoted vaccination, uh, although its routine use did not occur until the 1900s, owing to difficulties sustaining the virus through arm-to-arm inoculation. But Jenner's approach had its limits, right? Of course. First of all, not every human disease has an animal analog that can confer immunity without causing the disease itself.
0: Right. This is something that's very unique to the pox viruses because, Mm -hmm. you know, we even see this with our different influenza strains year by year. They're different. They're similar enough that they both cause a similar illness, but they're different enough that even our previous year's flu strain vaccine is not effective on the following year's flu strain. So this is something that was just Almost um, fortuitous in the context right. of the pox viruses,
2: right? And also, some animal diseases that that do jump to humans can be deadly to both, right? And for example, COVID nineteen we know, which is thought to have come to us via bats, right? Right. And actually, um, mm-hmm.
0: most of the human illnesses that we we get sixty one percent of known human illnesses and seventy five percent of recent human illnesses are caused by Animal diseases, those are called zoonotic diseases that jump from an animal to a human. And so mm-hmm. we know that, um, that that is a challenge.
2: Right. So the approach then became to work with pathogens that do cause human disease, but to somehow disarm them, right? To strip them of their ability to make us sick while training our immune system to recognize and neutralize them in the event of an actual later infection.
0: Yep. And I think that this is really interesting because, you know, this is all occurring, you know, Edward Jenner in the late 1700s, this is all occurring like during the the miasma theory of illness, right? You know, it was not consensus that diseases were caused by infectious agents. And this is all happening while the evolution of science is occurring and while Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch are formalizing the, the germ theory of disease, which is really the set of criteria that we now, you know, know to, I, to demonstrate that an infectious agent or a pathogen is actually the causal, you know, agent of an illness. And, and I find it really interesting that we're having these things kind of, you know, working in tandem with each other while so much of the world still didn't accept that, you know, a pathogen or, you know, an invisible microorganism is actually
2: causing illness. That's really incredible. So, okay. So scientists soon realized that there were a few different ways to achieve the goals of protecting humans from pathogens. And this is a real oversimplification. And (laughs) we had an earlier episode on vaccines where, Andrea, you did such a nice job walking us through the different types of vaccine technologies and how they work. But in a nutshell, they could either kill the pathogen while keeping it physically intact by teaching the body to recognize it and mount an immune response if infected with a live version of it, or they could weaken it, also known as attenuating it, but not kill the pathogen, rendering it harmless, but teaching the immune system basically what to look for and kill the next time it's exposed to it.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
0: Right, like, I, and Jess, I think this is so important because you know the scientists, you know, in the 17 and 1800s, are understanding that in order to confer immunity to a disease, the person's body, the immune system, has to recognize something that mimics the disease well enough. So that it creates that response, but then the next time they're exposed to it, they don't actually get sick. And this is all without actually understanding what the
2: immune system is. Just unbelievable. It really is. You're you're chuckling. I love when you chuckle like that. But it's unbelievable. No, it really is. (sighs) All right. We have a lot of ground to cover. I'm just going to mention, um, I guess we'll move to 18, 1881 and 1885. um, French biologist Louis Pasteur developed successful vaccines against anthrax and rabies, respectively, exposing the pathogens to oxygen and heat and weakening, but not killing them. Uh, Famously, he used a vaccine to successfully prevent rabies in a in a in a little boy named Joseph Meister, who had been bitten by a. A rabid dog. Then early in the 20th century, French physician Albert Calmet and veterinarian Camille Guerin, and I'm so sorry I'm definitely mispronouncing (laughs) these things, Andrea's probably cringing, Um, they developed a tuberculosis vaccine and similarly uh, they weakened a bovine strain of the bacterium by passing 230 generations of it through artificial growth mediums, selecting for weaker and weaker versions with each passage. Um, And and this
0: vaccine is what we call the the BCG vaccine, which we don't actually use for tuberculosis in the U.S. um, because tuberculosis is not very common here, but it is often used elsewhere around the world um, to this day. Hmm.
2: Do you want to take us through some other vaccines? that? Yeah, yeah, because
0: I think you did a really good job of talking about how you can either inactivate or attenuate a virus. But of course, there are other diseases, right? So mm-hmm. around the same time, you know, of, of the, the development with rabies and anthrax and things like that, there was also a devastating diphtheria outbreak. And diphtheria has mortality rates of up to 20% in children younger than five years old. And this is caused by a bacteria called Corynebacterium. Diphtheriae, and interestingly the the bulk of the disease pathology is actually caused by a toxin that is produced by the bacteria so a toxin is a toxic protein basically and so the the symptoms of the disease the pathology of the disease the fatality of the disease is actually linked to the toxin itself Um, And and in the 1800s, we didn't have antibiotics. So you can't kill bacteria with antibiotics. 1928 was the first kind of time where we had an antibiotic and that was Alexander Fleming and his penicillin. We didn't even have the antiseptics until kind of the late mid 1800s. so, you know, around the same time we're dealing with this diphtheria outbreak. Um, diphtheria was, was known throughout history to kill many, many children. The, the causative agent, the bacterium itself was discovered in 1883 by Edwin Klebs. And in 1888, Emile Roux and Alexander Yersin actually di- discovered the toxin portion. And the way they did this was they had grown the bacteria in media broth, which is just nutrient rich liquid. Um, and they filtered the the broth through porcelain, and they took the fil the filtered liquid that didn't have bacteria in it, and they were able to inject it into animals and kill the animals and produce the same um, the same manifestation of the disease. So this led them to understand the fact that the bacteria was secreting and producing this this harmful molecule. This this diphtheria toxin um, and that actually paved the way to the start of antitoxin and serum treatment. So this is not quite a vaccine because what we're doing is we're taking antibodies produced By someone who recovered from diphtheria, um, but it leads to that passive immunization. So basically you're taking those protective antibodies, giving it to someone else, and it actually helps treat and control the symptoms of illness. Mm -hmm. And that actually paved the way for toxoid based vaccines, which are. The next kind of technology of vaccines that were developed. And this started in the early 1900s. 1907, um, Emil von Behring began working to- towards these toxoid based vaccines for diseases that are caused by toxins like diphtheria and tetanus.
2: So no, Andrea, I know that it, it we're kind of making a joke of it, but the 20th century was a very busy time <laughs> for vaccine research and development. It's like very yada, busy. yada, yada. You know, we're just yada, yada, yadaing over incredible developments. Do you want to just, I don't know, hit some some really sure. high points? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So, so, you know, we just kind of started, we were kind of leading you through the, the diphtheria toxoid vaccine. Um, so in 1923, Gaston, Ramón, um, who was Ooh, a veterinarian. So Sorry, <laughs> my, my my grandfather or my great grandfather was Gaston. Oh, uh, on my okay. mom's side. <laughs> but you're doing a veterinar- him proud right now. <laughs> He was a veterinarian at the Pasteur Institute, and he actually developed the diphtheria toxoid. So a toxoid is basically an inactivated toxin. So very much like the inactivated viral vaccines, he took the diphtheria toxin and he inactivated it with heat and a solution of formaldehyde that we call formalin. And this basically it preserves the structure of the protein, but it inactivates the activity of it. So it can't actually cause the disease pathology but it looks similar enough to the toxin that your immune system will respond to it and it can lead to that antibody production. So this was the first kind of development of our toxoid vaccine. So now we've got our live vaccines, we've got our inactivated vaccines, we've got our attenuated vaccines, now we've got our toxoid vaccines. And what they noticed was the toxoid vaccines were were good, but you often needed multiple doses or it, or it waned, the efficacy of it waned quickly. So in 1926, the first adjuvant was developed, and these are aluminum salts. These are used to this day in vaccines. And what they do is they help amplify the immune response to a vaccine in a harmless way without having to add extra dosing of the vaccine itself. And so you know, alongside all of this, we're also developing um, new formulations of the rabies vaccine. We're developing the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines. These are attenuated viral vaccines. We We developed the typhoid vaccines. These are all in the early 1900s. So 1914 to 1930, a lot of stuff was going on. We had tetanus, rabies, typhoid, pertussis, diphtheria. But interestingly, In the 1950s, we're still experiencing polio epidemics. Um, we're, we're, We're combating all these other deadly illnesses. We're seeing dramatic reductions in cases of all these other fatal illnesses. But we haven't been able to find something to successfully treat polio yet. And in 1952, the U.S. was experiencing its worst polio epidemic so far. It was over 57,000 cases. And the case fatality ratio for paralytic polio um, for young children is is up to 5%. But for adolescents and adults, it can be up to 30%. So this was still a significant disease burden. And that kind of leads us to Jonas. Salk. And Jess, you want to talk to us about Jonas Salk a little bit?
2: Sure. So his breakthrough polio vaccine was approved in 1955, and that was based on formalin killed polio virus. And then um, later in 1962, there was another version that used an attenuated strain of polio virus. And the advantage of Sulks is that it could never cause a case of vaccine-induced polio, right? Because it was killed virus. Mm -hmm. Um, The advantage of the other vaccine, the one that used the attenuated strain, is that it was an oral vaccine, instead of an injectable one like salts, salts, excuse me. And this is really important because it made it possible for field workers who are not trained medical personnel to oversee mass immunization. And this is also really important for places um, in developing countries where it's just you don't have the capacity to, to get shots in arms, right? And so Absolutely. you have this oral vaccine that makes it so much easier to disseminate.
0: And all they did with that, it was a shelf-stable liquid. They would drop it on sugar cubes and they would give sugar cubes to kids. And so Mm -hmm. it was a great way to, we had these two different approaches. We had an inactivated virus and we had an attenuated virus. We had two different approaches to attack this really debilitating illness. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in the 1950s, we start these mass immunization programs to combat polio virus and And vaccine research and development is still progressing. So as we continue through the 20th century, in addition to the toxoid and the inactivated and attenuated, we're now understanding that we can actually use just pieces of viruses and bacteria to create a vaccine and trigger an effective immune response. And so this is where we have the evolution of what we call subunit-based vaccines. And so these could be proteins from a bacteria or a virus, um, each one that is specifically unique to the pathogen of interest, and it trains our immune system to effectively combat the real pathogen if we're ever exposed to it. So this is a swell of vaccine development. Um, Throughout the the second half of the 1900s, we see more and more um, vaccines being developed and licensed. We have the first MMR is licensed. uh, Haemophilus influenza type B is licensed. We have hepatitis A and varicella, which is your chickenpox vaccine, licensed in 1995. And I know, you know, I personally had chickenpox. I've actually also had a shingles outbreak. But that was 1995, so I was, like, right at the cusp of that. And and a lot of people think chickenpox is no big deal. But chickenpox caused, before vaccination, three and a half million cases of chickenpox a year, 9,000 hospitalizations, and up to 100 deaths. And we are able to prevent all of that now with the chickenpox vaccine. Not and, and to yet-
2: I'm sorry. I was just saying, and yet people still have chickenpox parties. Right. And, you know, they're t- to avoid this incredible <laughs> vaccination, this safe way to prevent chickenpox. They feel that this natural infection is safer. But exactly as Andrea just pointed out, they're. Overlooking these, you know, the severe illness, the hospitalizations, and the deaths. And I'm sorry, I just interrupted your thought.
0: No, it's fine. <laughs> um, I was just going to say something unique with the chickenpox virus is that even after you recover from it, the virus will actually stay in your body and it reactivates as shingles later in life. And mm-hmm. shingles can be debilitating, it can even be fatal in some instances. Um, and so, you know, by having a single vaccine to eliminate that whole disease uh, is just really incredible. And, and I glossed over one thing, and we talked about it before, but in 1980, smallpox was eradicated from the world. There were no cases of smallpox in the world because of the vaccination efforts that we've taken.
2: Unbelievable. So Andrea, did you anything else to add about the? I know we're like, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> going through these, these things, um, the, the vaccines that came about, and the, as you said, nope. the, you know, so I think yeah. the,
0: the next thing is really, so we've got these four vaccine technologies, right? We have the inactivated virus, we have the attenuated virus, we've got the toxoid-based vaccines. We have the subunit-based vaccines. And now we're in the current era, which is new vaccine technologies. And so we've added two vaccine technologies to that list. So now we have six. Um, and so we've got the mRNA-based vaccines. And, and the mRNA basically, instead of using a protein subunit, you're using an RNA subunit, which basically trains your body to produce the protein of the virus, which then your immune system responds to. And we've seen the the Pfizer BioNTech and the Moderna vaccines for COVID-19 use that technology. Um, and then we have the viral vector technology, which basically uses a harmless virus as a delivery vehicle to bring that gene for COVID-19 into our body, which again, will make the protein for and have an immune response against. And again, we've got the Os- Oxford AstraZeneca, the Johnson and Johnson, and even the Sputnik one um, from Gamaleya are using that technology. So now we have six different vaccine technologies and it's really opening the door for the future of vaccines. And of course, mm-hmm. this history of vaccines is going to evolve. There's a really great timeline on a website that we're going to add to the show notes so you guys can kind of sift through the the other things that we've kind of glossed over. Not not because they're unimportant, but just in the, you know, for the sake of time. But a lot of those things are things like regulatory oversight, um, you know, the development of the CDC's, um, you know, uh, committee for vaccination practices and FDA's regulatory reviews and all of the sort of things that ensure that vaccines are tested rigorously, are safe, are effective, all the surveillance, all of that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, Andrea, you know that my um, my public health heart has to talk about some of the, you know, the, the incredible impact mm-hmm. of vaccines. So first, let, let's focus on the U.S. So after the introduction of SALT's inactivated polio vaccine, the incidence of polio dropped from 29,000 cases in 1955 to fewer than 900 in 1962. Then with the introduction of the live attenuated vaccine in the early 1960s, polio was eliminated from the United States. Moving on, since its licensure in 2006, the bovine human reassortant rotavirus vaccine, which we didn't even talk about, um, has virtually eliminated rotavirus, preventing Mm -hmm. up to 75,000 hospitalizations and 60 deaths per year. During the 2019 through 2020 flu season, the flu vaccine prevented about 7.52 million infections, 3.7 million medical visits, over 100,000 hospitalizations, and over 6,300 deaths in the U.S. alone. The measles vaccine has nearly eliminated a virus that previously caused two to three million infections, 50,000 hospitalizations and 500 deaths every year in the U.S. And unfortunately, Andrea, I know we've talked about this on previous episodes Mm -hmm. because of vaccine hesitancy, we are unfortunately seeing cases of the measles crop up again, which is really unfortunate because it's entirely preventable. Right. We've seen a substantial reduction in the incidence of mumps, which was once among the most common causes of acquired deafness. Uh, In terms of rubella outbreaks, rubella caused as many as 20,000 cases of congenital rubella syndrome and 5,000 rubella related spontaneous abortions per year. And the varicella vaccine has markedly reduced varicella-associated morbidity and mortality. Um, There were more than 9,000 hospitalizations and hundreds of deaths um, every year. And Andrea, sorry, you you already pointed that out. And then in addition, since the Hep B virus vaccine started being routinely recommended for newborns in the early 90s, rates of Hep B virus among children younger than 10 years have fallen from about 18,000 per year to nearly zero. Now, it's,
0: it's just, it's truly incredible. There's this little infographic that basically collates the CDC data for all these vaccine preventable diseases. We'll put this up on the website. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, at least 80%, in some cases, almost 100% reduction of these vaccine preventable illnesses.
2: And, and another thing to note, you know, I, I have so much to say about this, but I know, you know, we don't want this to this the episode has to end at some point. But we should also <laughs> acknowledge that um, it did take longer for the developing world um, to, to roll out uh, vaccinations. There are lots of reasons for that. Um, but there was this uh, program, the World Health Organization established the expanded program on vaccination in 1974. And the goal of that was to increase the uptake of routine child Childhood vaccines around the world. And the program has been very successful um, with coverage rates of vaccines climbing rapidly from less than 5% to over 80% in many low and low middle income countries.
0: That's incredible.
2: It, it it really is, and and just to to highlight some notable notable global health statistics, Andrew, we um we celebrated this in, in August, just this past yes. August 2020, Africa was declared free of wild polio. Yeah. That is huge. Just 25 years ago. Thousands upon thousands of children in Africa were paralyzed by the virus. And now the disease is only found um, in Afghanistan and Pakistan.
0: Two countries out of the entire world now. Um, And and soon um, with additional efforts, we may be able to have our second globally eradicated illness.
2: Oh, my goodness. And then another thing to note, between 2000 and 2014, annual estimated measles deaths declined, from, uh, declined 79% from 547,000 to 115,000. It is estimated that 17.1 million deaths have been averted from the measles vaccine. And that's, again, just in, in less than 15 years. That's yeah. incredible. I, I'm talking about the Time span between 2000 and 2014, and then looking at multiple illnesses in low-income countries. And when I say multiple illnesses, I'm talking about um, multiple vaccine-preventable <laughs> illnesses. It's estimated that because of vaccines, we averted 23.3 million deaths between 2011 and 2020. I am speechless. Yeah, um,
0: it's, it's I mean Vaccines really are one of the single biggest accomplishments in modern medical history, but when you really kind of see the timeline and see the impact all laid out there, it just becomes, you know, overwhelmingly clear.
2: Mm -hmm. I always say vaccines and antibiotics. I mean, absolutely. Those two things (laughs) contributed. I think, the most to, um, to to all the progress we've made in, in public health. And I just want to recognize, I know so many people also point out things like, you know, having clean water and improved sanitation, and I don't want to... Um, you know, overlook those things. Absolutely, those things contributed. There, There's no doubt about that. But the evidence uh, supporting the the power of vaccinations is just absolutely irrefutable, so. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and now, you know, we're in this situation where we need people to get these COVID-19 vaccines. You know, Jess and I have both gotten our first doses. We're waiting on our second doses. Whoop we whoop. continue to share data <laughs> about the safety and efficacy of those vaccines and where they fit in the evolution of vaccination technology from 1000 CE to present day. Um, And we hope that this this episode gives you a, a better appreciation for how this has evolved over human history. All right, Andrea, you want to take us home? Sure. Thanks for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. Uh, Make sure to, after you tune into this one, scope out our other episodes about vaccine types and technologies and all of our COVID-19 and vaccine Mythbusters episodes. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to also check out our website. Um, We do post show notes there for every episode, including citations and links to all of the references we discuss. So you can find that at www.unbiasedsipod.com. You can also pick yourself up some Unbiased Signs merch or leave us a donation. Now, next week, since spring is in full swing here in the Northeast, we're going to talk a little bit about Lyme disease. Now, this is an infection that is rife with misinformation, so it might be a two-parter. And this one is particularly near and dear to my heart as my doctoral dissertation research was all about the pathogenesis of Lyme Borreliosis. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19 vaccine progress and pandemic updates on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us there on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no-nonsense, just science.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.